Well, good morning. My name is Trevor Archer, one of the members of the church here, and it's uh, my privilege this morning to conclude our series on Jesus and our emotions. And this morning, as you well know by now, we're thinking of the issue of Jesus and our grief, Jesus and our grieving. Of all the human emotions, none is more painful, more raw, more debilitating, more traumatic than that of grief. When it invades our life, it's quite overwhelming. C.S. Lewis, that great author, and the loss of his wife Joy through cancer, described it like this. Her absence is like the sky, spreading over everything. Spreading over everything. It's what grief feels like. It leaves us crushed, sometimes angry, with a constant ache in our hearts, an overwhelming sense of loss in our spirit, and frequent tears in our eyes. Live long enough, and we will all taste the bitterness of grief. And let's be mindful that it comes in many forms, not simply in bereavement. A fractured friendship, a failed marriage, a wayward child, a broken dream, a career rejection, childlessness. There are myriad forms of grief. So Jesus and the grieving is no theological academic subject or exercise. We're talking this morning about raw pain, broken hearts. So before we go further, let's pause to pray to ask God by his Holy Spirit to help us and to speak to us this day. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at the heart of the universe is a God who knows what it is to grieve. And we pray this morning that as we dig into your word by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to comfort us, to encourage us, to point our eyes afresh to Christ. Amen. Now, in the short time that we have this morning, I simply want to take us to three passages uh, in the Bible uh, that show us that actually grief, the issue of grief, lies at the very heart of the gospel. But also, at the same time, it brings us a unique perspective upon grief because the answer comes to us wrapped up in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So come with me, please, to Isaiah 53. I think it will appear on the screen. I'm going to read a short passage from Isaiah to you now. And when we see him, says Isaiah, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised, rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
Now, at the heart of the prophecy of Isaiah, that monumental uh, prophecy in the Old Testament, lies chapter 53. Isaiah has spent the first half of his prophecy uh, looking back and looking around. He sees in doing that what we essentially see today if we do that. He sees a world that's full of wonders and delights, full of potential, full of joy, possibility of great happiness and delight, but all of it touched, scarred, ultimately ruined by disease and decay and death. He looks out upon what is essentially a grievous scene. Isaiah knows this is not how it was meant to be. It's not how God made it. That's why he looks back. And we know that instinctively. My time as a pastor at this church, I had several uh, privileges of being with people in the midst of their grief. But on every occasion, it's shouting to you, it should not be like this. At the bedside of a mother holding a stillborn child or in the intensive care unit of a London hospital with my friend Peter Morris, who's just seen his wife and 14-month-old child burnt alive in a car accident, or alongside a father who knows he will never kick a ball with his disabled son. All of us, in one way or another, have been there, I'm sure, and we instinctively know this is not, this is not, how it's meant to be. And Isaiah and the rest of the Bible shouts at us, no, it's not meant to be like this. It's not how God designed it. But the awful reality, as Isaiah has been pointing out, the unpalatable truth is that all these terrible things are a consequence of our first parents turning against God, deciding to go their own way rather than God's way. And pain and loss, and death, and grief that invade our life, all are a consequence of that self-inflicted disaster. It's the awful price the human race pays for rebelling against God. It's a gloomy picture that he's painted, but it's not, praise God, the end of the story. Having brought us face to face with the reality of our lives, Isaiah 53 marks an astonishing turning point. Because at this point, Isaiah proclaims as he looks forward that one day God himself will come to deal with the problem of death and decay. A problem that's beyond the cure of mankind. But here's the amazing thing about Isaiah 53 that is revealed to us in graphic detail, that when God turns up, he will come as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, verse 3. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a comfort? For as Isaiah goes on in verse 4, he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. The point is this, that deep at the heart of the gospel is a Messiah who is acquainted with grief 
in a way that no other human being ever could or ever will be. We endure grief. We live through grief. But we do not become, in the context of Isaiah 53, intimate with it in the way that Messiah, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be intimate with it to the extent of bearing our griefs. For to do that, he must first experience for himself the disastrous effects of sin and death and the pain and the grief that they inflict upon our lives. And so, 600 years later, when in accordance with Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus comes to earth, he comes as a man of sorrows to suffer the consequences of our rebellion, to bear our judgment. He comes to be that man of sorrows, which is one of the most beautiful titles in the whole of the Bible for the Lord Jesus. For he has borne our griefs. He comes as the grief bearer. Recently, the Queen said this, grief is the price we pay for love. Grief is the price we pay for love. That was a simple but deeply perceptive comment. And at the heart of the gospel and in the sufferings and death of Jesus, Isaiah foresees the unique grief, the terrible grief, the price that God would pay for his love for people like you and I, for rebels, for sinners. You see, it's a grief that caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a grief that caused him to cry out in agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a grief that silenced heaven in bewilderment as the father turned his face away from his son on the cross, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame. You see, on the cross, God's love pays the price of unimaginable grief. As Samuel Crossman expressed it in that lovely hymn that the, the group sang to us, my song is love unknown. Here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. God's grief, you see, is at an altogether deeper level. It's not to minimize for one minute the grief and the pain and the heartache that we experience, but it is to recognize the immensity and the uniqueness of the grief that God himself bears in order to rescue us. And because of that, because of that, there is real comfort, there is real hope right now, an incomparable hope, an incomparable comfort. Because by being the great grief bearer, Jesus becomes at the same time the great hope giver. And we see that as we travel into this story in John 11 that was read for us earlier on. So let's travel on 600 years from Isaiah to this scene outside Jerusalem. In a matter of days, the promised Messiah 
the suffering servant will go to the cross. He will be betrayed. He will be abandoned. He will suffer the inhumane pain of a Roman crucifixion. But on his journey there, he receives this urgent call from his friends, from Mary and Martha, to come because their brother, Lazarus, is seriously ill. But he delays going purposely for two days. By the time he arrives, Lazarus is already dead and in the tomb. And on his arrival, Jesus is met first by Martha and then by Mary. And how he deals with these grieving friends takes us to the very heart of how he deals with us in our grief and our sorrows. Martha, ever the activist, rushes out to see Jesus. Remember what she said, verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Isn't that so real? Isn't that how we feel? We often feel at the loss of a loved one. Lord, why have you allowed this to happen now? Martha really believes that Jesus being there would have made a difference. Lord, why didn't you show up sooner? Soon Mary joins her sister. Mary's a very different temperament than Martha. She's quiet, she's devoted. She's the one, remember, who sits at the feet of Jesus, drinking in his words while her sister is busying herself in the kitchen. And faced with the pain and heartache of his two friends, John tells us in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping and all those who were with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. They moved on to the tomb and in the shortest verse in the Bible, it captures the heart of Jesus for we're told he wept, he wept. The onlookers are both amazed and bewildered. They're amazed, see how much he loved him. They're bewildered. Well, couldn't this miracle worker have kept him from dying? Well, yes, he could and he will. But Jesus' first reaction, notice, is tears. Tears. Tears, not words, are often the best response in the rawness of grief. They convey far more than a thousand words could do. But why does Jesus weep? He knows he's about to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Is this a kind of a crocodile tear event? Is it a kind of a theatrical performance to, to give added oomph to the miracle? No. He grieves for several reasons. He weeps for several reasons. Firstly... Verse 11, he'd lost a dear friend. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christians should not grieve. No. We grieve, we grieve because never again in this life will we see their smile. Never again will we feel their touch. Never again will we hear their laughter upon our ears. How we grieve will vary deeply. We shouldn't try and pigeonhole grieving 
There's no right or wrong way to grieve. But Christians are to grieve. Jesus grieved. Jesus wept. He feels the pain of loss deeply. He had lost a friend. As Isaiah says, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But he weeps because of the presence of death in the world. The coroner's report might say he, she died of natural causes, old age. But in fact, there's nothing more in unnatural in all the world than death. We instinctively know that because God has planted eternity in our hearts. Death is not how God, the giver of life, made things to be. It's a wicked, alien intruder. It's a terrible enemy. It bears all the fingerprints of Satan, the father of lies, the murderer himself. There's nothing natural about death. And Jesus weeps because of this catastrophe of death. But the main reason he weeps is because of the terrible harvest that sin reaps. Funerals, gravesides, cemeteries, all the heartache, all the pain that accompany them ultimately are a consequence of our willful determination to go it alone from God. Death is the bitter tragic fruit of sin and it deeply grieves God he's not distant he's not aloof he's not remote his son comes and weeps over the loss of a friend weeps at the tomb of a loved one but here's the wonderful thing here's the glory of the gospel the one who weeps at the tomb of his friend is also the only one in all the world who has the power to overcome the catastrophe of sin and of death. The author of life steps into his world to conquer our two greatest enemies at the cross. And the great reversal of sin and death being conquered, a new life being rebirthed, hope restored, is all found in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is about to take place within a week of this event in John 11. You see, Christ deals a killer blow to both of those things. And so the God of all comfort, as the Apostle Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians, brings the greatest comfort of all to his grieving people. In all its myriad forms, whatever the brokenheartedness we face, he stands before us as he stood before those two sisters and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Death is not the end of the story. Sin will not have the last word. I will. And Jesus, Jesus, my friends, is the greatest comfort in the face of grief, whatever that grief may be. And to prove it, to show we can and indeed must believe in him, he calls Lazarus back from the dead. This is the guarantee. This is the first fruit. This is the guarantee of what's going to happen to all the Lord's people on that great day of Christ. He calls Lazarus out by name. Lazarus, come out. C.H. Spurgeon, that great 19th century Baptist preacher in London, made the point that he had to name him or else all the dead would have come out. Lazarus, I only want you out at the moment. 
The rest are going to have to wait for a while. My friend, today, every day, the call of Christ comes ringing down the years to us. I am the resurrection and the life. And as he said to the sisters, he says to us, do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, believe in me, he says. That's the comfort. Comfort comes to us in a person. Trust me, I keep my word. He is the only true and present source of lasting consolation. He is the one who gives his people that ultimate glorious hope. Hope that is not wishful thinking, but unconditional certainty. And this means that the grave and separation and grief is not the end of the story, you see, because we now turn quickly to the end of the Bible, to Revelation and Revelation 21. Again, let me read it for you. Because Jesus, the grief giver, the grief bearer, is the hope giver, but also he is the joy giver. Revelation 21, some very familiar but glorious words. The Apostle John sees this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will be their people. He will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's so important that we grasp that the gospel is primarily about the future. The promises of God are always about the future. Right now, in this life, in God's kindness and goodness and mercy, there is so much that we can enjoy and delight in. But we know even the best of things are always going to have to be tinged with sadness, tragedy and loss. Because we live in a scarred and broken world. But it's not the end of the story. In 1974, a demented man broke into the King's College Art Gallery in Cambridge and he defaced Rubens' famous painting, The Adoration of the Magi. For days, the college authorities agonized. Could this remarkable masterpiece be restored? An expert renovator was brought in. The days went by. The art world held its breath. Then eventually, the verdict came. The masterpiece is damaged, but it can and will be restored. And on that great day of Christ's return, the masterpiece of the world that you and I live in and the life that we have tasted will be restored. Not simply restored, in fact, but taken into an entirely new an indeed unimaginable new state of existence, a new heaven and a new earth. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, God's people 
will gain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Liberty from what? From death and decay and grief and tragedy. This is the destiny of God's people, of all those who trust in Christ. This is our sure and certain hope. That's the liberty. That's the freedom. A new day is coming of inexpressible joy. A new world. Paradise regained, as Milton put it in his famous poem. When there'll be an end to grief and sorrow. No more disabilities. No more funerals. No more heart-wrenching farewells. No more regrets. No more of all the rubbish that messes up life. No more tears other than tears of inexpressible joy and delight in the Saviour. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That's your destiny, Christian. As a song we're going to have at the end says, then one day I'll see him as he sees me, face to face, the lover and the loved. No more words. The longing will be over. There with my precious Jesus. Friends, that's where it's all heading. That's where it all ends up. So let me close by asking you, is this hope yours? C.S. Lewis once said, suffering is God's megaphone to wake up a deaf world, to bring us to our senses, to wake us up, In his mercy, God often allows tragedy, grief to invade our lives in various forms and his purpose is always a good one. It's always to humble us. It's always to stop us, to make us think and consider the big things of life. It's always with the aim of bringing us to himself because he alone is the one who can bear our grief. He alone is the one who can deal with that deep-seated innate problem that infects every single one of us. Luther called suffering God's severe mercy. Behind every tragedy, he hides a smiling face, said Cowper the poet. He uses this thing, you see, to to bring us to himself. I wonder if that's where you're at. You may be watching in this morning. You may be here in the auditorium. Has God been letting tragedy invade your life? It's bewildered you. It's hurt you. It's made you angry. My friend, all those things are very common and, and very normal. But they're there to point you to Christ. He's the only place you're going to find true peace, true rest, true hope, true comfort. There's no comfort in grin and bear it. There's no comfort in wishful thinking of what may or may not be in the future. This is rock certainty. This is God revealing himself to us. He's come from the future to tell us about that future now in the presence to draw us to himself. And if you're in that place today, then let me urge you, just to cry out to God. Lord, help me. Lord, 
comfort me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, come near me. God always answers that prayer. And Christian, when grief invades our life, let me gently remind you that it is the territory of the Christian life. Jesus never promised anything else. The issue is, what do we do with it? Because again, God is often using that grief, that sadness, that disappointment, that setback to draw us to himself, to gain our attention. And when it invades our life, what are we to do? We're to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The gospel of a grief bearer who draws near and whispers incomparable hope into our ears and into our heart. The gospel of a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief and by his spirit comes alongside us through his word to bear our grief, to comfort us in our sorrows. We tell ourselves the gospel, the gospel that encourages us to cast our care upon him because he cares for us. Many years ago, Val and I went to the Hammersmith Odeon. It's not confession time, it was a gospel concert. The funny thing about it was that um, it was a brilliant Afro-Caribbean event. We were probably the only two white people in the room of 3,000 in that cavernous hall of the, of the Odeon there. It was a, a man called Andre Crouch, and singing a hymn, some of you may know, not a hymn, a gospel song, Soon and Very Soon We're Going to See the King. Of course, when it started, everybody was up on their feet, except these two Brits, who eventually got there and got on their feet themselves. But it's a brilliant anticipation of heaven. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. No more crying then. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. Perhaps we could teach it to the band. We could sing it next Sunday. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Never mind. I won't get an invite to that, will I? But nevertheless, what a great anticipation. What a great hope is ours. Soon and very soon. In the context of eternity, it's soon. We're going to see the king. What a day that will be. When the party begins. When the dancing commences. When the old order of things is swept away. And everything is made new. Praise his name. Everything made new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your Son you bore our grief. We thank you, Father, that in the gospel there is incomparable hope. I pray this day for those who are particularly grieving at this time that indeed they might know the comfort of preaching the gospel to themselves and may we do that for one another. And for those who don't yet know you, Lord, may this be a day when you turn hearts to you, we pray. So, Father God, hear our prayer this morning and be with us, we ask, in the Saviour's name.